This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. This podcast is Shareable. I'm your host, Jeff Gibbard, commonly known as the world's most handsome strategist and professional speaker. I'm also a superhero. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single Shareable episode. And that's it. That's the intro. Short and sweet. Let's get to the show. Today's guest is Jamie Mason Cohen, and we're going to be talking about narrative leadership and self-actualization. This is my first attempt at trying to do a more heavily produced episode of a podcast. I, uh, I hope you enjoy it. Again, it's my first attempt at it. I've added a lot more music, some voiceovers and different things like that. So um, I was just trying to have fun with the format. My guest was absolutely amazing, and uh, I really look forward to sharing this episode with you right now. What's your favorite topic? Your favorite topic is you, isn't it? Don't feel badly about it. I mean, virtually everyone's favorite topic of conversation is themselves. You see it in virtually every conversation. Most people will inevitably find a way to take what you're talking about and relate it back to themselves. This preoccupation with ourselves is part of human nature. We are always in the process of forming or reinforcing our identities. This process is what gives us the opportunity to build greater self-awareness and begin to consciously shape who we want to be. We have the opportunity to self-actualize. We are both who we are and who we choose to become. And today, we will explore a profoundly powerful superpower. Pay close attention, because once you unlock this ability, you will command attention and captivate minds anywhere you go. And this gives you a unique opportunity to influence people. There are two types of experiences that can captivate our attention. One that gives us permission to indulge our interest in ourselves, and one that makes us lose our sense of self. And then, of course, there are the experiences and stories that allow us to simultaneously lose ourselves in the story while also seeing ourselves in the story. In my opinion, the most consequential of these experiences are the ones that change how we see ourselves. So let's begin the process of learning a new superpower, but first, I'm going to take a slight detour for a brief history lesson that I promise will make sense in a moment. The first official reference to handwriting analysis is often attributed to a book written in 1575 by Juan Huarte de San Juan. Others would argue that it was Camilo Baldi in 1622, but whatever the origin, since then it has become what is now formally known as graphology. I discovered handwriting analysis when I was 12 years old. That is Jamie Mason Cohen, a teacher, speaker, leadership trainer, and graphotherapist. I was on stage in grade 8 drama class in Toronto, and I was in front of all of my peers, and I froze. I couldn't get the words out, because at that time in my life I stuttered. So I came home, my mom asked me what happened and I shrugged, I said, I don't wanna talk about it. I eventually told her that I froze in front of my peers and my mom said to me, uh, honey, show me your handwriting. Because my mother, aside from being a teacher, also had the ability to look at a person's handwriting and tell them interesting things about themselves, talk about their strengths, tell them about areas they could grow. And I was totally skeptical. As I'm sure some of you are right now. Well, keep listening. I said, mom, are you telling me you can analyze my personality based on a few strokes on the page? That's crazy. Well, I didn't say that last part because my mom is my hero. 
But what it did is it planted the seed that I could change and that I could grow. Essentially, it became the foundation of a growth mindset that I knew that I could change different parts of my personality by virtue of looking within myself, not what other people thought, but what I could do to change. And handwriting analysis became this weird, obscure, yet accurate form of personality assessment that I could learn more about myself and my strengths and also connect with others. And from that moment on, I became really engaged and interested in why people behave the way they do through the psychology of handwriting analysis, or some people in different countries may call it graphology. In today's episode, you're going to learn how to absorb Jamie's superpower, which is using the power of narratives to give people that opportunity to transform into the best versions of themselves. We're going to talk a little bit about Jamie's work in handwriting analysis, his background as a teacher, his experience coaching leaders, and his experience in public speaking. But as with any good superhero story, it all starts in the same place, the origin story. In Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, he talks about 12 stages that a character goes through. The second stage can be summarized as the call to adventure. And the call to adventure in the story is when the hero, in this case, I am the hero of my life, is called to something greater than themselves. And it can be a small moment. It doesn't have to be a big epiphany. And for me, it was when I was working at Saturday Night Live in New York City in my early 20s when I just graduated from the University of Western Ontario outside of Ontario. I was working on day one. I was on a studio floor surrounded by writers, directors, producers, and comedians. And someone had said that the new guy, Jamie Cohen, could do this strange thing called handwriting analysis, where he could help discover the strengths through handwriting. The next thing I knew, all of these well-known people who I had looked up to from afar for years were asking me to look at their signatures to see what lies beneath the surface. You see, because everybody's favorite topic is themselves. Everybody wants to learn about themselves in a different way. See, so handwriting was a way that I could connect with people. I was shy. I was a little bit insecure. And I had difficulty in those kind of new social situations really getting to know each other. So this became the ultimate icebreaker, which then showed me the power. It became the call to adventure that handwriting analysis could be used in the real world to really make friends to connect with others and i've taken that with me in every job since every superhero remembers the moment that they realize that they have a super ability it usually follows a long period where they believe that what they can do is simple or common here's when jamie realized what he could do was something pretty special there was a ser- there was a series of moments where i knew that this hobby which essentially what handwriting analysis was for over a decade, I spent about a decade learning. And I took it for granted that other people were as interested in this as I was. When I did it for producers and writers and colleagues at Saturday Night Live, and I saw their response, I ended up taking it into my next career as a teacher. And as interesting as it was for me to see the response as an icebreaker, that it was for people who were in that world of entertainment, what really shook me to my core 
that I knew that this hobby that I almost dismissed had value to really transform people's lives was when I was a high school teacher, which was my next adventure after I worked at Saturday Night Live. And I found that students often didn't see the genius that lies beneath the surface. And handwriting analysis became a way that I helped young people believe in themselves before they believed in themselves. And it didn't matter that kids didn't write as much as when I grew up. Every student wanted to see if I could help them see within themselves what their strengths were. What was their purpose? What kind of a person would they be in relationships? How could they improve different areas of their life? And it became something where when teachers were struggling to connect with a student, sometimes students don't understand how to exist in this particular structure in a school system. They didn't know how to make friends. And teachers would come to me and say, can you help us help our kids, help our students? Parents would do the same. And I would say, do you want to see something that's quite unique? It was one parent who came into me during parent-teacher night. And she had just seen teachers from all over the school. And she said, tell me something I don't know about my son. And I, need, I want you to tell it to me right now in the next 30 seconds. She crossed her arms and she waited. And I said, do you want to hear something you've never heard before? Yes, I do. So I, her son happened to be with her. He was 14 years old. And I showed his handwriting to her. I, he wrote it something down. And I said, he yells at himself inside. The voice in himself is telling him that he's no good. He beats himself up. He puts himself down and then other people start seeing him like that as well. That's what he's projecting in the world. But here's what I see in his writing. I see that not only does he have this incredible ability to communicate, it's in the figure eight formations that he writes, but he also has a gift of being quick on his feet. He has this very sharp analytical mind and he needs to start believing in himself like I do, like you do, mom. And I know that this can be the moment that makes a real change in his life. And at that moment, this mother started to cry and she turned to her son. Her son had been, they said he had ADD, you know, ADD, that he had social issues, that he couldn't make friends with other kids that he was rude, that he talked out of turn, that he was inappropriately funny. And here I was telling her something where the strokes on the page revealed something that nobody had seen except the mother knew. And she said, from that moment on, he started showing up differently at home. His grades started to improve. I helped him start an NFL football club. And I remember one day walking down the hall and here was the kid that couldn't make friends who was seen as a social outcast, whose marks were low, and he was surrounded by 20 other boys, and he held the stage. He was leading the NFL football club, which became the top club in the school that month amongst 50 other schools, clubs, and committees. And I ran into his mother shortly thereafter, and she said to me, Mr. Cohen, I got to talk to you about something. She said, that moment where you saw the strengths that lie beneath the surface of my son that nobody else could see was the pivotal moment that transformed my son's belief in himself. Belief is a powerful thing. Belief in yourself can be among the most powerful. Jamie understands this and he uses it to change people's lives. But doing this is not always easy. 
Some people are skeptical. Some people push back. Some people even get angry. One of the hallmark traits of a superhero is overcoming adversity. We've all faced challenges in our lives, and we've all had the experience of overcoming obstacles. And it's this shared experience that makes adversity so universally relatable. Jamie's story is no different. I gave a keynote talk at a large leadership summit in Georgia recently. And at the end of my talks, people have the option. Many people take me up on it. I say, we've looked at the writing of famous people like Abraham Lincoln or Frida Kahlo or Gandhi or Mother Teresa. Let's look at your writing. So I'll have someone come up on stage and I'll analyze the writing. And then I go off and I sit at a table and people will line up for hours. And these are some of the most successful leadership coaches in North America who waited there for hours on end for me to look at the writing for two minutes. One gentleman came up and he was quite aggressive. He threw down his piece of paper, the two lines I asked people to write. And he said, I don't believe this. I like nice presentation. Show me what you got. I, I want to see you and I want to hear the negative things. Now, I usually focus on strengths, but I said, okay, I will frame the conversation to talk about different areas of your life. So he sat down and I told him that his relationship with his family is a little bit strained. And when he can resolve that, then his professional life will move more in the direction that he desires. And I'm, I'm purposely saying general because this is private between people one-on-one. -on -one. Essentially, I told him that he's putting so much energy and so much frustration in trying to fight or resist what's going on in his family life that all of the good I see in his name, because your, your first name is your belief in yourself. That's what you build. The letter I, the height of the letter I, the direction that it's angling, the pressure all has to do with your sense of self, your belief in yourself, your ego, the I. His last name is your family name. So it's how you see your family or your ego or yourself in relation to your family. And I said, we need to build up your family because so much of it is angling in the, in the wrong way. Your energy is moving in the wrong direction. And he completely changed. His body language went from aggressive to you know WTF <laughs> like what just happened and his time was up and I had someone uh, I have a, someone stopping the conversation he said no I need to hear this and we sat and he ended up opening up to me that he was going through a messy divorce that him and his wife were struggling with how to come to terms with this new relationship after being married for many years and what that happened there was I initiated what was on the page. It's not magic, although I love magic. It's not mind reading, although people think it seems like mind reading. A stroke is a stroke wherever you find it in handwriting analysis. I was showing him how the patterns of strokes and his signature alone demonstrate how he's showing up. Now, the reason I love handwriting analysis 25 years later to this day is because he was the one to discover what he needed to do next. I couldn't tell him that, but by showing him that, he 
found this self-awareness in that moment that usually would take three therapy sessions, according to friends of mine who are professional therapists who have done this with me, it helped him realize in the moment what he needed to do. So handwriting analysis is like brain writing or frozen body language. It's the ability in that moment for me to help you see what you need to see in that moment to help you build up your self-belief to know where to take the next step in your life. Throughout the course of Jamie's career, he's faced all sorts of criticism and skepticism. Some things that you might be thinking like this. It's random. You're just making stuff up. That it's magic. I am a big fan of magic, but it's different than magic. That I'm a mind reader. That I'm very good at reading people's body languages or energy. And I'm basing it off of that. That it's not real, like that there's no way that this could be accurate. It's very general. It's not specific. Those are some of the things that people think going in. No matter what you do as a career, as a skill, as a hobby, you will likely encounter some form of criticism. And in Jamie's case, encountering this sort of resistance time and time again actually led him to develop a really incredible skill, resilience. I still throw up before at least 80% of talks that I give. I, no matter how small it is, it can be in front of 15 people or 500 or more. Now, Johnny Carson threw up before every Tonight Show. The late, uh, not late, the great Bill Russell, the Boston Celtics, threw up before every game he played, except one year he didn't throw up before every game, and he said that was his worst year. I mention that because I have this feeling, I think due in part because I know that every time I go up there as being a sensitive person, who's more on the introverted side than the extroverted side, or I derive more energy from going inward than outward, that I feel judged when I'm on stage because I am doing something that at least 50% of the room, I can't verify that number, that's what it feels like, is a little bit skeptical, to say the least, of handwriting analysis. It seems strange. It seems like a parlor trick. It seems like a novelty that's not to be taken seriously. And I know that every time I go up there, it's as if the first time I learned handwriting. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to make mistakes. I want to be perfect, yet perfection is impossible. And the way that I've overcome that is how anyone in a leadership position, you could be a manager at a meeting, you could be an entrepreneur who's pitching, is I simply tell myself a few things that I learned from stand-up comedians of all people when I worked in New York because I organized a tour for comedians who would go on to shows like 30 Rock and have their own specials on Netflix. And one thing that I saw them do as they went on stage night after night in different environments, sometimes they were highly skeptical of their comedy, was they would say, you got this. They would never use it in the personal pronoun I because it would put too much pressure on their ego and their sense of self if they were judging themselves on their own value or worth based on how well they did on stage. So they would say, you got this, man. You got this, girl. 
you're the you, you, you are awesome it was as if Sigmund Freud or Carl Jung a psychiatrist was giving them this psychological advice yet they were the psychiatrist giving themselves that advice and so i would overcome my fear which exists for the talk i'm giving next week i'll be sure i'll feel the same and i'm sure i'll feel like a like throwing up in the hotel room the night before is i will say to myself you got this you have been doing this for 25 years all of the wisdom that you have incurred all of the mistakes you have made have given you the resources the courage to do the thing you fear and the courage comes after to quote george clooney in three kings and whatever you're doing whatever your handwriting analysis is whatever your superpower is it is totally normal and i would say natural because you care is the reason why you feel so uneasy as if it's the first time you've done it you want to add value you want to serve and in doing so you realize that what you're about to offer this audience is something that they've never seen before and you have the power to change minds that you have the ability to impact somebody in a way that they haven't been impacted before of re- reinforcing a strength or skill or their own superpower and you don't take that lightly either pay attention to this next part because Jamie reveals what i believe to be the secret to overcoming imposter syndrome and doubt it's okay to take what you do seriously but not yourself and when i've gotten into trouble after i've gotten sick and on stage is when i act like the expert not like the lifelong learner but you don't have to act like the expert you just have to enjoy yourself is to believe that that you're enough and that your superpower is going to mesmerize some people about 25% of the room people are going to be mesmerized 25% of the room are going to just not like anything you do because it's their own projection of their own inner belief or lack thereof and the other half of the room could be swayed either way they could go with the haters they could go with the ones who love you so focus on that 25% of that room and that as a superhero and your sense of belief will be secure from those who will push themselves against you no matter how impactful it is Jamie understands people and graphology is just one of the tools that he uses to keep people engaged and by getting people to be reflective he is able to help them see things in themselves and reminds them that they have the opportunity to make new decisions to change who they are in the future Jamie uses his gift in service of others and if you're wondering how you can do the same just listen to what he values and copy these values for yourself some of the superhero values that drive me to do the work that i do are one kindness as a father i want to be the kind of man that my son not only learns how to be a man but also that i model what i put out in the world so uh whether it's being a teacher or a speaker or a strategist whatever whatever i do i want my son who's who's uh 7 years old to see that my actions speak so loud it doesn't matter what i'm saying of course it matters what i'm saying 
But my point is, is that actions speak loudest as a role model for my kids. And my daughter, I want to be who's six. I want to be the kind of man that she sees the way I treat their mom, my wife, is the way that they both should expect to be treated in their relationships, however those take shape. The second thing is compassion. The way I see compassion on stage when I'm speaking is to fully embrace every person's distinctness, to be completely inclusive to whoever I'm speaking in front of, to really understand them through, I do at least one pre-call, which many speakers do, I know, where I really want to understand who I'm speaking with, what are their struggles, how can I empathize? And if I can't fully understand what another person is going through, I don't think any person can fully understand what another person is going through. I can at least be compassionate and do my best to understand and show up in a way that serves their needs by asking them, what are your problems? What are your concerns? What do you want for your life? And listen. So listening is the vehicle or the gateway to compassion. Listening, giving people space, not interrupting, affirming what they say, which is such an important superpower. I don't even think it's a mini superpower. It's a sub superpower within compassion. People are not acknowledged enough. And I think that so many people I meet, including myself, are hungry for basic acknowledgement, for their ideas, for their dreams, in their relationships. Give people your ear, and that is a way that you can show compassion, even if you could never fully understand what they're going through, regardless of the audience you meet. And the third one is growth. What I find interesting is when I do data-driven personality assessments, not handwriting, but when I do other forms of personality assessment, and as you can imagine, I am, I fully adore and embrace different forms of personality assessment other than handwriting. Handwriting is one of many effective ones. Often at toward the top of the values, including the famous strengths finder, is growth, is personal learning. And so my superpower, the way that I've gone from working for a TV show to directing commercials, to being a high school teacher who was awarded by TED Education the Innovation Award for Learning Environments, to writing a book, to now being a professional speaker, and I only name those not to brag or as a humble brag, is to prove a point. Do you know what I can attest is the number one reason all of those things have happened? because I'm committed to personal learning. And that is a superhero, as well as compassion. Of course, the same as kindness, that every person listening to this can develop. And I encourage you to do so, because each one of those has helped me in a unique way to live my best life. And I know that each of those can contribute to you living your best life.
If you're a subscriber to the Superhero Institute or have read the manifesto, you'll notice that two of the three values that Jamie uh, holds close to him are actually from the superhero code. So I was interested. If I kept pushing Jamie and found out more about what he valued, would he name another one? Sure enough, when we started talking about some people that he admires, he gave me one more. Courage. Courage is a broad framework. One of the things that I teach in workshops is about how to have courageously authentic conversations, a term that I appropriated from the leadership circle who talks about courageous authenticity. And I am in some ways courageous, yet I want to continue and continually become more courageous. So people who I see are going through crisis, whether it's, uh, I have a friend coming over this weekend who is just in the midst of a messy divorce. He has so much going for him in every area of his life. He has two shows on Netflix where he's a supporting actor. He played in the NFL. And yet, what I see as something so profound is his courage of how he's dealing with what he said is the most difficult moment of his life, which is a divorce. And so we're spending the weekend, he's coming over and we're going to have a, a group, a little discussion. I'm going to bring in a few other friends who may have gone through similar things. And I really admire him that he is not disappearing, which I would also admire anybody who deals with the difficult thing, how he's dealing with it. I want to give you one more example of courage, which to me is extremely important. And I'm going to bring up a little bit later when we do the handwriting analysis. I have a friend who's an NHL hockey player. Uh, now he's a coach for the Montreal Canadiens. I'm going to name him later. We've known each other for 30 years. And growing up, I admired him. He actually billeted at our house when I was 13 years old. He was 18. He was a first round draft choice of the Toronto Maple Leaf hockey team. He lived in my basement. I had a hockey player living in my basement. And all of a sudden, I became the most popular kid on the block. Everybody wanted to come to my house. And I said to my mom, isn't it amazing how popular I've become this year? Well, we know why, because Luke was there. And so he used to come home on Sundays after practice when they were having home games. And he sometimes came with other Toronto Maple Leafs. And they would come over and they would play road hockey. Now, in the 80s in Canada, we would uh, play road hockey and people would yell, car. And then we'd move the nets, uh, which were pylons, and then move them back. And I had such an incredible year in seventh grade. But that's not why I'm telling the story about courage. A few years ago, eight years to be exact, Luke and his wife, Stephanie, went through the most difficult circumstance I can ever imagine, though I can't fully imagine at all what they went through. Their 14-year-old daughter, they have two daughters, uh, Darren, took her own life unexpectedly. We heard about this. The next day, my whole family, my mom, my dad, my sister, and I were on a plane to Ottawa. And in front of a full stadium, one by one, kids went up and said how much this girl made an impact. She was the most popular kid. She was a straight-A student. She was a great athlete. And my friend Luke, as anybody can imagine, was 
completely decimated and destroyed. And I remember hugging him and this big, strong hockey player who I looked up to my whole life, like, a, like an older brother, just hugged me and was crying. And what did he and his wife do in response to the worst tragedy imaginable? They started a foundation. They had the courage to start something called DISD, which stands for Do It For Darren. Luke wears purple. If anybody here watches a Montreal Canadiens hockey game this year, Luke is the assistant coach for the defense, and he stands on the bench, and he always wears a purple tie, purple jacket, or even a purple, purple socks. And that's in memory of his daughter. And they have taken the worst tragedy of their life, and they've started a foundation that now affects people across Canada. It's become a grassroots movement that now I'm speaking on behalf of. I met with them last week. And it's to bring awareness to teen mental health as well as mental health for adults. And it was that moment where in their grieving process, they asked themselves at some point, what can we do to honor our daughter's life? And they started a foundation so that other children across North America and beyond will have a place to go and adults will know some of the signs if those signs are there to help people going through those difficult times. So I tell people, and I told this to Luke to his face, as I have before, that he is my example of courage. He is what I not only admire, but who I aspire to be like as a parent and also as a role model of taking negative situations and turning them into opportunities to serve the world. Despite the fact that they're often used interchangeably, did you know that there's an actual difference between courage and bravery? You see, bravery is about running into danger or a situation without fear, whereas courage is to have fear about running into that situation, but doing it anyway. See, courage is about facing fear, whereas bravery is about having no fear. So courage seems to me to be a little bit more realistic in most circumstances. But... How do you manifest courage? Well, it turns out that both Jamie and myself leverage a specific technique that allows you to manifest courage or any other emotion or way of being at any given time. So think of this as a hack, and you'll definitely want to start using it. My alter ego is essentially the best version of myself. And the projected qualities that I look at with admiration in my heroes. So I start with myself and realize that I'm enough, that in my particular case, I'm the guide on the side, not the sage on the stage, to quote a college professor's book many years ago. And so my, my alter ego as the guide on the side says, first of all, I'm enough just as I am. Uh, everything that I've put forth for this talk coming up or this meeting I have I had last week I don't have to force it I don't have to act so I want to let my myself know that when I'm at my best I have certain qualities and what do these qualities look like so just quickly some of my qualities would be uh, people have described me and one way you can ask about your, your best is ask people around you. 
If you're in a relationship, ask your significant other, what am I like when I'm at my best? When, when I inspire you, when, ask your friends, ask your parents, ask people who know you in business who you trust. And so people have described me, not describing myself as you have a calm energy, I feel uh, non-judgmental that I can, I can talk to you about anything that when I'm in a conversation with you, I sometimes get lost in the conversation because of the way you tell stories, because of your enthusiasm. And I internalize those. I actually write it down in my journal and I will, before a talk, I'll say, remind myself every time, even though I've given hundreds of talks, I am calm. I'm a good listener. I am enthusiastic. And I start piecing together this. Literally, I'll write a circle, which is literally myself, my eye. And then I'll put an arrow all the way around this, almost mind mapping. And I'll just write these quick little ideas down, these personality traits. And then I'll go through it and say, what do I look like? What do I feel like when I'm calm? Well, I, my body language is not always leaning forward aggressively. It's kind of centered. I used to practice Tibetan Buddhism. And what am I like when I'm in a mindful state? And so I start with myself. I go through each of these traits. I then will look at people who I admire. So right now I'm in my office in my home and I have a combination of my wife, my kids, I also have heroes on this wall. So one of my heroes is Raoul Wallenberg, who saved 100,000 uh, Jewish lives in Hungary in 1944. And I studied him for many years, his dignity, his poise, the way he handles himself in a crisis, how he influences others in the worst imaginable circumstance. And I will say, well, how would Raoul Wallenberg act on stage? which is almost laughable because he's there saving people's lives with a gun to his head and theirs where he could lose his life any moment. And I'm concerned about a speech in front of, you know, 150 people. Yet at that moment, that speech feels like that fight or flight system in psychology. It feels very real to me, even though the stakes are not anywhere near as high as that situation. So I look at Raoul Wallenberg and I say, what would he do? I'll watch a movie about him. There's been several movies. I'll look at other leaders like Freddie Mercury lately I've been looking at and saying, Freddie Mercury in the Live A 25-minute piece that is also featured in the movie on his life, I love the nonchalant confidence that he has. It's almost as if he's saying, I really don't you know, give a shit about what anybody thinks of me. I'm going to have fun up here. And I also have to realize that if I'm in a leadership position, I need to have some fun because people respond often to humor even more so than they do to serious, heavy energy. So I have a sense of humor, you know, it does, I don't always show it, but I have it. So what does that look like? What is that? What is it's lighter? Energy is lighter. When Freddie Mercury is on that stage, he's got a light presence, but yet he's, you, you can't keep your eyes off him. You transfix on that energy. And so it's a combination of a Ra Wallenberg, of a Freddie Mercury. And it, depending on which situation, I may pull in other people who are riveting to me. Hugh Jackman, I look at now in The Greatest Showman, in the performance he does behind the scenes, where he just had 80 stitches in his nose from skin cancer. And yet he goes there in front of these producers after eight years of trying to get this project made. And he wasn't he only told the director that he was going to actually sing when 
the doctor said do not sing because it could damage your nose and completely change your your nasal where how you sing but he went in there and he delivered this and had the courage to do that so i've been using hugh jackman and incorporating him and saying how did he show up in that moment so ultimately my alter ego is what what how do other people see me at my best because it's often easier to sometimes ask other people who you trust how you're showing up at your best not your worst at your best and then combine that with no more than three i say no more than three because that's very hard to hold in your head all of this at once even during practice and say how what's my body language going to be like how am i going to breathe how am i going to speak how am i going to stand how am i going to respond what is my confidence going to feel like toward other people and that combination of elements makes up that alter ego when i go up and i give a talk you may have very well thought out superhero values you may use the alter ego technique to manifest courage or strength kindness generosity or growth but all superheroes have a weakness a kryptonite if you will and even if you desire to be in service of others, it's not going to be easy and may actually come at a cost. You have to be careful not to let your strength become your weakness. So I talked to Jamie about that, and he revealed to me what his kryptonite is. Maybe you can relate. My kryptonite right now is not taking enough time to rest. So it's, in one word, could be workaholism that um, I don't give myself a break sometimes to celebrate victories. For example, I just finished an online course that took me three and a half years to create uh, from start to finish. And my wife said to me, Karen said to me, why don't you take a day off? Like, why, you just finished this. Why don't you take a day off? Just don't do work don't have an agenda of a checklist of things you need. Just do something for yourself. Cause I paint, uh, I do abstract painting for fun and also as an, as a healthy escape. She said, just go paint, do something else. Uh, and I just didn't do it. I just said, well, I have a talk coming up. I have, uh, this other project I'm working on. I have this call coming up. And she said, I know, but you always have something like that. Just take a break. And that is a problem that I am, it's in my control. It's something I need to work on. That um, the way that I felt there was a real moment of clarity as to how it affected me was we went on a family cruise in March. And I said, I will have no access to internet for five days. And um, I didn't, I kept it. And I loved it. It, it was as if this space opened up within me. I wasn't always constantly thinking, what's next? What do I have to do? This could be better. I need to learn this. With any trait, I learned this with the leadership circle as a leadership coach. Any trait that's overextended, overused, or overdependent on can become a liability or a kryptonite. And so working hard, people, a friend of mine who's a newly a new entrepreneur, worked for IBM for most of his life, adult life for about 18 years. Now he started a new tech company and we talk almost daily. And he said to me, almost the opposite of what I'm telling you. He said, you know, I wish I had more of this discipline that you have where 
every day you're automatic. You just go, go, go. And you're constantly moving forward and you're moving forward. You're speaking to her and blah, blah, blah. And I actually cut them off, which is a no-no. I usually tell people, just say thank you when you, someone gives you a compliment. But because of our closeness as friends, I said, you know, thank you. And it's not really what I want to cultivate. And he says, what do you mean? It's a reason for your success. You're so diligent. Or uh, he used another word along those lines. And I said, I'm working hard. I'm getting things done. But what is it at the expense of? Am I really honestly present with my kids, even when I put this away? Am I giving myself space so that I don't get burnt out in this new path, even though I love it? And I couldn't answer those questions with full authenticity that I was giving myself some space to balance between my work and my life. Meaning my work is obviously an important part of my life. My family is more important than even my work. And I have had to ask myself that tough, vulnerable question lately, which is ignore, actually ignore that when people tell me they admire uh, my work ethic, because that's an example in the leadership circle of a trait that leaders have that may have gotten me to where I am right now. It's not what I want to see my full holistic approach to my life be in even one year, not even five or 10 years. So work ethic, if it's overextended, overused, or overdependent on, can be a liability. And right now, I think it's still a strength, but it is slowly shifting toward being a liability unless I take steps right after this podcast <laughs> to alleviate that and to do what I need to do to balance, to go paint, to go for a walk with my wife, even if I could spend another hour preparing for my talk next week. Being aware of your weaknesses and flaws is one thing. That sort of self-awareness can obviously be very helpful. But it's important to have steps and things to focus on if you want to keep yourself on the right path. It's very easy to allow extraordinary abilities to take you down a dark path. You may start to use things for selfish gain, or you may lose sight of why you did it in the first place. And Jamie has some interesting advice on how he keeps himself in check and what he looks for. I'll reference the study by the leadership circle, which looked at, which has looked at over 500,000 leaders across different sectors over the past 10 years to see what makes leaders great and what makes leaders ineffective. And the ineffective parts of a leader are called the reactive leadership styles. So those are areas that are not necessarily villainous, but they could be considered and seen as negative qualities. So those are areas such as conservative, pleasing, belonging, passive, arrogance, critical, distance, perfect, driven, ambition, and autocratic. And amongst those 11 reactive leadership qualities or areas that take people away from being their best form of a leader, when I actually did the leadership circle on myself where I asked 10 other people who know me well in different capacities in my life to do a survey on me, 
what showed up was perfectionism. So perfectionism is a trait that has its strengths. To be a perfectionist often helps you. It's helped me continually to push forward in a driven way toward excellence. So it's not a negative quality, but if it's overextended, overused, or overdependent on, it can alienate. It can alienate other people because when I'm a perfectionist, I feel like I'm a little bit too hard on other people. I know I am. I will do things very quickly and efficiently, and I like to control a project. I like to control outcomes, even though often that is. Impossible to control every outcome, and I think sometimes I realize that other people work in ways that that makes them a little bit uncomfortable. They don't feel the need to drive forward with that type of focus and discipline. They sometimes more want more time. They want more space. They don't want to answer an email right away. They don't seem see the need to be this intense. So this trait, at times, may have alienated people who I would have liked to develop a professional relationship with, because I was thinking with a singular mindset and not so much as a collaborative mindset. And instead of asking questions first, I would just dive in, take action, forge ahead, and make something happen. Without fully taking into in, into account that this person has a different way of seeing this process, so how can I avoid perfectionism? How have I avoided perfectionism moving forward? Well, the first thing is when I have a negative quality is to accept it, to say, "Yeah, I I expect more of myself than anybody else can ever imagine." Quoting. Appropriately, in the context of this podcast, Philadelphia Seventy Sixer, Doctor J, and I expect more of myself than anyone else could ever imagine. Yet, I can still balance that by realizing that it's okay to take a break, to not be so hard on myself, to give other people more power and more respect. That if I delegate a task, or if we're working fifty-fifty, that they're going to make it happen in their own way, and not believe that my way is the only way or my way is the highway. So perfectionism now is a potential villainous trait that is a strength, yet it can easily turn unless I keep those beliefs at heart, which were. In summary, give other people space to approach the problem in their own way. Don't be so hard on other people, and don't be so hard on myself. And realize that I can still get the job done, even without controlling every aspect of the process and the result, because ultimately, being a perfectionist. Is a fear of not wanting to lose control. Does this story sound familiar? It does to me. Virtually every high performer I've ever met 
struggles with something very similar. No matter how extraordinary you are, you have weaknesses, even if you don't talk about it often enough. Being committed to making a difference, being in service to others, and staying true to your values can be a heavy burden. Sometimes, even superheroes need someone to step in and save them. The hero needs a hero. And as Jamie says, sometimes it's just about showing up to give your support. The, the, the times in my life when someone stepped in to save me and the people who were the ones who did it were my parents. And what it taught me was I got cut from a team when I was a baseball team, when I was 12 years old, when I connected my identity to being a good baseball player, which I was, and the coach just didn't think I was. And I remember my parents sat there with me and they built me up. They reminded me of my positive attributes. They reminded me that one person does not define who you are. And that idea, which I haven't expressed in words often in my life, that one person does not define who you are, was helpful at every stage. Because in each stage of my life, including, again, even though I was much older, I had gone back to school at 30 after being uh, working for Lorne Michaels in New York. It felt like I was going backward. and. I was an out-of-the-box thinker, I still am. And there was a teacher who you have to work as an intern in a way for teachers, experienced teachers. And this one teacher hated my style. She said, stop bringing New York into our suburb. And uh, I wanted to put on these vast shows of making Canadian history, which is generally pretty boring. It's not nearly as interesting as American history. I brought my friends in who were actors to play um, characters like Laura Secord, who uh, was uh, a hero uh, in, in how she fought the British at the time when Canada in its early days and on and on and on. And I was almost about to be kicked out of teacher's college for being too much of a free thinker. And my parents stepped in. My dad is a uh, retired lawyer and my mom is a principal and uh, she's now the leading conflict resolution expert for the our, our school board in Toronto, Toronto School Board. And they sat with me when I was distraught at a moment when I said, what did I get myself into? I'm, I spent eight months doing something I didn't want to do in the first place. And now I'm about to get kicked out for being too innovative, they, they called it. Like I couldn't believe it. And my parents sat with me and they reminded me about Dead Poet Society, one of my favorite movies with Robin Williams, where he also, yeah. Yeah, it is for me too, it's why I became a teacher. And they said to me, you're being described even in teacher's college as a Robin Williams type of character, as a, as a Keating, John Keating. And they actually sat in with me, even though I was 30, um, and I'd lived on my own since I was 19. 
they came to this meeting where I had to be up in front of all of these heads of this teacher's college in Ontario and including the big, the, the head guy. And I had all my notes. I was shaking because more out of, I was furious. I was so upset that I was in this position in the first place and, and almost embarrassed, even though I had nothing to be embarrassed about because I didn't do anything. They just said I wouldn't follow instructions because I didn't agree with the way they were teaching. And I was teaching differently. And my parents' presence, they were there just knowing they were there. I did 90% of the talking. And I came out of that meeting feeling so supportive. I had this psychological safety by having people who I knew knew me, the real me, knew how talented I would then show later. Um, I was showing, but at that time it wasn't acknowledged. And that set my teaching path for the next 11 years forward to to be someone who impacted from what other people told me thousands of people's lives. And it was my parents who helped me through it. Cause I was ready to quit. I said to my, my parents, I said, you know what? I'm done. I'm quitting. This is not what I signed up for. I didn't even want to be doing this in the first place. They were the one who told me that I'd be a, a good teacher. So once again, they came through. And so in the hero's journey, the fourth stage is the mentor. It's meeting of the mentor in the wizard of Oz. Dorothy meets the good witch and the good witch is the one her name's Gilda the good witch she gives Dorothy guidance and the ruby slippers that will eventually get her home again but yet the mentor can only go so far with the hero eventually the hero must face the unknown alone and sometimes mentors give the hero a kick in the pants to get the adventure going and what my parents did as the mentor who can be a wise old man, a wise old woman, it's usually an elder, not always, it can be an energy. Yet that is often symbolic of the bond between parents and children or teacher and students or doctors and patients. And the function of my parents as the mentors in my hero's journey was to prepare me for the unknown. They gave me guidance, they gave me advice, they listened, they were the energy that I needed in that moment. And the point of all this is that regardless of the situation that you're in in your life, you may not always have that parent or that significant other or that friend who's there for you, is that sometimes I believe you need to be your own mentor in being the guide to help take you through that next level. And that's easier said than done. But what happened was when my parents served in that role as a 12 year old, when I got cut from that baseball team, I made it the next year to the all-star team. And I went quite far I made all Toronto uh, high school team uh, and all Toronto competitive team. And I believed it was because not so, it wasn't that I was so great. It was that, the influence of my parents helped me believe in myself before others could believe in me. I was the mentor to that student in that moment with his mom who just simply showed him what was already there. And he went on to get on the honor roll and start his own club and make new friends. And that also happened with teachers college. I almost quit, but it was that energy. It was that presence. It was that parental influence that showed me the way that I could move forward in my best self, even if that person, that one teacher, I don't even remember her name all these years later, 
it was just one opinion. It didn't matter. It's not how I define myself. So look for your mentors. But like Dorothy did, she realized that home was not somewhere you needed to go to along the yellow brick road. That home existed within her the whole time. So what are the attributes and the values that you have within you right now? Everyone who's listening has shown moments of courage that be, can become a mentor. Everyone who is listening has shown moments of vulnerability. Showing moments of vulnerability is mentorship to yourself, that you have the courage to show vulnerability. And everyone on this call has had moments where you have soared, where you have achieved something. Even if you've dismissed it, if you look back, you've done things that nobody else that you know, or I do, or Jeff knows, has done in the way that you've done them. And you've earned those. Those can be moments, anchors of mentorship to move you forward. And then when those external mentors show up, then those in many ways become additions or they become further guides to help you along your path. But you don't need to have a parent figure in the moment to help you know what the next step is. You can go within and look at what you've already done to see where you need to go. On the surface, this might seem like an episode about graphology and handwriting analysis, but if you look deeper, it's about seeing the strength inside of ourselves and seeing the greatness in others. Jamie's given us a lot over the course of this episode, so I'm going to let him leave you with just one more tip before we move to what happens after the snap. In those moments where you feel alone, realize that you can be your own savior. You can be your own support system. I find writing a journal helps with that because if you write a journal, even three days a week, the five-minute journal or any type of morning page where you write down how you feel or you write down what you're grateful for, specific areas in your day, in, in moments where you feel vulnerable, when you feel alone, is to have that book available to flip through and say, oh, two weeks ago, look at what I did. I am capable of this. Or this person was there for me. They, they did compliment me. And sometimes in those dark places, when we need a mentor, when we feel like we need to be saved and supported, someone's not always there in the way that we need or want. And in those moments, it's not a default. It's more of a, a groundedness to realize that everything we need in ourselves is there. We just have to get still and quiet and ask some of the right questions. Hopefully you've taken a lot from this episode. Hopefully you're able to map this new superpower onto yourself to be able to see the greatness in others, use it as a way to create closeness and connection, to be able to influence and persuade, and doing it all in service of others. So now we come to the point in the episode where I ask the question. Even though at the time of recording this, Jamie had not seen Avengers Endgame, I explained the premise to him about the Infinity Gauntlet and about the snap and what it would give you the ability to do. And I asked him, if you could snap and change anything in the world, but it would cost you your life, what would you snap for? Here's what Jamie had to say, and stick around after the snap for a handwriting demo that you can play along to. After I snap, I would want people to continue. I, I would not change people's ability to think freely 
what I would want to change and to impact humanity is for the part of our nature that where evil exists, not the darkness, but where this evil part that produced a Rwanda, the killing fields, the Holocaust, slavery, and beyond, I would want that part of the human psyche erased. It's a fine line because I think without darkness, you can't have light. Yet, humanity is moving in a direction where those impulses, those inexplicable impulses, continue to move in the direction of destroying each other and destroying the earth. So in order to really save humanity, as cliche as that sounds, I think it has to start inside. It has to start with our thoughts. And I would not want anybody to be controlled through their mind, but I think eliminating whatever that piece of that somehow is self-destructive, not just on ourselves, but on others and in the world, I would want to eliminate that so that the future of our species continues, evolves, and grows. Thank you for joining me on the first episode of Rogue. It was a real delight to talk to Jamie, who's a fantastic guest, and he really made it quite easy for me to construct an episode like this, which for me is a first. I hope you stick around after this little credits that I'm doing right now and participate in the handwriting demo that Jamie did. And uh, you can learn a little bit about yourself and what your leadership style might be and, and how you see the world. So thank you again for listening to Rogue. Please come back for another episode. Tell your friends to subscribe. Thanks again. Okay. So, um, so Jeff uh, and all of, you, all of uh, your listeners, if everybody could get out a piece of paper, preferably unlined. So just a blank piece of paper, a blank piece of white or yellow paper. I'm going to go grab a piece of unlined paper. Hold on. And this can also be done with a, a stylus. This can be on, done on an iPad uh, or your computer where you're writing on it with a, a stylus type of uh, pen. What type of pen? A stylus or something where you're, is that the proper term? Like something a, where you're writing on your computer. Yeah. So like a normal like gel pen or ink pen of some sort? Sure. Yeah. Cool. Got it. All right. So I currently have in front of me a, a piece of normal printer paper. I am right. the exercise. Okay. So you're just going to write this. You're not going to overthink. If you usually do cursive writing where you connect the letters, you can do cursive. If you usually print, you can print. You may want to try both to get a more, more of a sample. And then after you write the, the two sentences that I'm going to tell you, please sign your name, your signature underneath. So here's the sentence everybody is going to write. I told you and your purple people eater friend period. I told you and your purple people 
eater friend. Okay. The next line is capital. Take that silly monkey and go back to the darn zoo. The sentence is take that silly monkey and go back to the darn zoo. And then your signature underneath. Now, it shouldn't be the signature that you do when you sign checks. Well, people don't really sign as many checks at the bank anymore. It should be the kind of signature you would write if you took your time to write a letter to a friend. That could still look in a certain way. Okay, so write those two sentences, sign your name underneath. Yeah, writing in cursive is way harder than I remember because <laughs> I never write in cursive. But I'm trying yes. both because I, uh, I, want, I want both. Now, as you're doing that quickly, the reason I have this strange choice of two sentences is because there are several traits that I can see when I have the combination of those traits with your signature. So each of those letters represents different traits. And just to remind you, the act of writing starts in your brain, sends a signal down the nervous system to your hand, and your fingers carry out the directive of your brain. So you see your writing paints a picture of what you think. And each stroke you've just made on the page is directly correlated to a particular personality trait. And we are now going to look at several traits that you might have in your writing. Now, let's be clear. If you don't have these traits or you can't see them right away, it doesn't mean that they don't show up in your personality. This is just one way that you can see it. As a professional handwriting expert, when I look at people's writing, I will see things that obviously you don't because it's my expertise. Um, but these are a few ways that you can start off. So the first thing we're going to look at is um, what I want you to look at is, is your writing going straight up and down? Is it going straight across the page? Like almost like a ruler, it's so straight. Or is it going slightly up or slightly down? So from letter to letter or from word to word, is it going slightly up, straight across, or slightly down? Now, you don't have to answer that. I'm going to tell you that if your writing goes slightly up to the right, that you have something in common with designer Vera Wang, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, and Yankee slugger Roger Maris. And that is the sign of the optimist. So the optimist is someone who sees the opportunity in every crisis, who has a muscular calm in the face of trying circumstances, to quote Martin Seligman, the positive pioneer psychologist, the pioneer positive psychologist. And you ask yourself, in difficult moments, how can we take this difficult moment and celebrate something within it one day? Now, many people don't have this trait. They may write straight across the page. And if you write straight across the page, then that shows more realism. It's looking at a problem on a problem's terms. So you don't get too excited about what the future holds. You say, wait a minute. Let's look at this from a practical, pragmatic standpoint, like Bill Gates has this trait. And your writing looks more across the page. And let's ask Jeff. Jeff, is your writing, how would you describe your writing in terms of the direction? Uh, mine goes 
very much up and to the right. Okay. So that would be a form of op optimism, a person who looks in a dark moment and maybe not in that moment in a grieving period, or you mentioned that you went through a divorce or you've gone through other difficult times, I'm sure professionally in that moment, it is completely normal, even for an optimist to feel deeply. As a matter of fact, in a mindfulness training, they, what they want you to do is feel the feeling full and not run away from that. So an optimist is going to feel it fully. Eventually, when you come out of that, or when that feeling lets go of you, you are then going to look ahead and say, okay, how does this make me stronger? How can I find the kernel of light from this darkness? Now, for those realists, the optimist can learn from you because if your writing is going straight across, the ideal form of optimism, according to Martin Seligman, is not to just be happy all the time, is not to look at your problems in a work environment and say, great, we're going to just uh, quickly scan over all the problems and just say everything is good. Because that's not an effective form of leadership either, is it? Because it's, people just feel that's inauthentic and they feel they're not really being heard or acknowledged like we spoke about earlier. So what the optimist can learn from the realist is optimism balanced with realism is a positive leadership trait. Yet what the realist can learn from the optimism optimist is sometimes being overly realistic stunts your growth because you say, I just want to do what's practical and I'm not going to allow myself to get too excited or too enthusiastic about what's to come. And we need to balance that. So the realist can look toward the optimist and feed off of that positive energy toward the future. So that's the one trait that we can see in handwriting is the optimist and the realist. Now, if you want to go a little deeper into that in handwriting, it's limitless how far I can take this based on the traits and the combinations. If you're writing a slanting slightly downward, that is one of the traits I help people with in graphotherapy because I'm also a certified graphotherapist, which is a form of handwriting. And that is the ability, if you change, you physically change the letter formations, the way you write certain letters or the direction or the pressure that we believe that it impacts the neuropathways in the brain. It literally changes your physical habits and behaviors if in coordination with other forms of therapy. I wouldn't do it just on its own and expect change. But if you went to therapy, if you did morning pages, if you tried other ways, uh, implement gratitude daily in your life through journaling, that it can help you. So if you're writing with a downward stroke, and I think quite a lot of few people write downward, it is the for it is often, not always, it's never always in any form of personality assessment. It could be one of the following things. You're working too hard. You're emotionally drained. Or if it's completely slanted downward, like literally you jumped off a cliff and it's light on top of that. It's very lightly written. And it's not because the pen ink, just you're writing very lightly and it's downward consistently. That could be that you are feeling down. And I'm not a psychologist or a trained uh, psychiatrist. But that may mean that it would be good 
to seek help that works for you to figure out what feeling or what's the underlying cause, the core feeling that is making you feel this way. And one thing you can do in grapple therapy is right upward. So sit up straight. I'm sitting up straight right now. I'm actually doing this with you. And I want you to write your signature. Actually, I want you to sit in mindfulness. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn, I took uh, his workshop, his three-month workshop several years ago, which is scientific-based. And so these are some of the things. Sit up straight in a chair or on the ground. I want you to breathe in through your nose and through your mouth because handwriting is also a form of mindfulness. It goes really well when you're journaling. Is breathe in through your nose. And if it's comfortable, breathe out through your nose. Breathe in comfortably, but don't over overdo it. Breathe in. Breathe out. Okay, so you're sitting up straight. You're sitting up confidently. It's as if a line, a string is being pulled up through the top of your head to the ceiling. And you are going to write your name. I'm writing it right now. Write your name. Write out every letter of your name. Be present. Don't rush through it. Because rushing through your name is meaning you're not making time for yourself or those loved ones in your life. Take the time to write out every single letter of your name with an upward slant. Do that a few times. Okay. And most forms of therapy, if not all, are based on the premise of you need to believe in the therapy you're doing in order for your mind to put it into action in your life. And so if you don't think that this is plausible or you think it's a stretch that if you change the direction of your writing or your T-bars or the other things that I could teach you in graphotherapy, I would say that even if it's just the placebo effect, the placebo effect is the ability of believing something because you're told that, because it's suggested that if you take a pill that it's going to help you. Well, it's been shown that the placebo effect has often, uh, it often has success in certain contexts to help people in certain ways. Not always, but in certain contexts. So even if this is just the reminder that if you're writing with a down, downward slope, that the guy on the podcast said that when I write downward, it's a sign that I may be exhausted, enervated emotionally and physically. I may be feeling low and that if I write upward, it's to remind myself to see the good in my life. It's a reminder to take uh, a, an approach of being warm because optimism is a form of warmth and energy. It's, a, it's to be warmth to other people. When I'm warm with other people, it builds my own optimism up. That's why I suggest to people if they're feeling down is to simply go out and serve other people, help, volunteer phone a friend and ask them what you can do for them. Write someone a nice note. And that's going to help you build more optimism along with writing morning pages, being mindful and accepting your feelings and writing with an upward slant. Awesome. All right. Are there any other things that you want to uh, share with people at, uh, in terms of looking at it? Like you've mentioned eyes a couple times and T's and the T bars. Um, are there any like kind of big, big takeaways for people when they're looking at this sentence? Uh, big thing. Cause I mean, I, you know, the, the upward and to the right being optimist uh, that, that matches perfectly for me. I'm definitely an optimist. I look at every situation as an opportunity to learn and grow. Um, what are some of the other ones that are kind of like the big takeaways that you see time and time again? 
one of the big takeaways that everybody can instantly see in the writing now is in the T bar, the lowercase t. Now, did you know that there's 18 different ways you can cross your T bar in handwriting or 18 different ways that that T bar means something slightly different? I didn't. So I'm going to. But I probably yes. see all 18. In, in my yes. 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 And that's the thing, Jeff, is that often people have different levels. And, you know, that's one of my roles is when I see that I look at the puzzle that makes you the unique person you are. And I and I put them together to see where these may be showing up. So see, your writing is what is who you truly are. And your signature is what you want the world to see. That's your authority in the world. That's your brand. So if we look at the writing, not the signature, if you look at the T-bar, if your T-bar is somewhere in the middle, so you can just look at your T-bar, is it you know, kind of in the center, either a little bit higher, or a little bit lower in the center, that tends to be someone who's practical, who is living in the moment with their goals, because the T-bars represents the first thing is goals. So how high are you putting your goals? If it's in the middle, it's practical, it's day by day, you're probably not thinking more than three months down the road. It's like, what do I need to do today and then tomorrow to do this? Dale Carnegie called it day-tight compartments. You're living in day-tight compartments. No, that has its value. As a matter of fact, uh, it's, a, it's a healthy way to live in day-tight compartments. Now, if your T-bars are high on the T-bar, on the T-stem, we call it, okay? So there's the bar going up and down. The stem is the line you make going across. I'm sorry. The T-bar is the one going across. The stem is up and down. So like a plant, the stem is going up and down. The bar is across. Now, if you write that bar high on the stem, so it's high on that line, then the higher it is, but not too high, if it's toward the top, that's someone who sets high goals. That's a person who sets clear boundaries in terms of how they expect to be treated in a relationship. So that's a good sense of knowing your own values and your own worth, high self-esteem, and you uh, think down the road. It's a visionary trait. So Abraham Lincoln had it. Steve Jobs had this trait. It's looking well into the future and setting very clear long-term goals. So the mid zone is often practical. The high goal is looking well into the future. And if the T-bar is low, so it's literally toward the bottom, well, use your common sense based on what we just said. If it's very low, it may mean you're underestimating your own power. It doesn't mean you're any less capable than the person who writes their T-bar at the top. It just means that your confidence level with regard to your confidence, with regard to your goals and your self-esteem, which are connected in handwriting analysis, you may want to raise your T-bar. When you raise your T-bar, it sends a signal to your neural pathways to raise your goals that you deserve better for yourself, to value them more. Now, the other thing I'll share with you, I'm not going to share all 18, but the other things that you can look for quickly in your T-bar is how long they are. So if you have long T-bars, meaning if you take how long is long, well, if it's about the size of between that letter and the next letter. So it literally almost crosses over the next letter if you look at it in terms of spatial dimensions. That represents enthusiasm toward your goals. So the longer 
that is, the longer you're going to persist in pursuit of those goals. The shorter it, it means you probably work hard in a short amount of time, you do what you need to do, and then you're done. So if for some reason an obstacle is in your way, it may mean, it may, not always, it may mean that you stop and be like, okay, I've had a few obstacles. I'm just going to do what I need to do and get out. I'm not going to pursue this any further. But the longer it is like Thomas Edison, Thomas Edison's whole factory burnt down at 67 years old. They had only one copy of the, these precious patents. And his team was literally on, in, in the ruins of the fire and said, what do we do next? They're all in tears. Everything had gone up in flames. And Edison said, look, we are going to start again. We are going to rise from the ashes of what happened here. Because I see this as an opportunity to do things we've never done before. And there was something in the way he said it that made everybody believe that it could be done. And within three months, they had the main factory up and running. Within a year, they had produced things and they were more profitable than they had been the last four years. And it started with a leader with enthusiasm. And if you look at Thomas Edison's T-bars, they're long and they're strong. So the strength, the way you write, I'm literally hitting my hand. That strength is energy. That's that passion and that energy, that, that indefatigable force where you may have downs, but you always dust yourself off and you move forward with energy and enthusiasm. So my, your takeaway here is regardless of where your T-bars are, you may feel confident in your professional life. You may have high T-bars in your signature, which is your professional face. But your personal life, maybe your relationships, you don't quite feel as confident in certain ways, which is normal. I see this with stars. I've done this, I've done this type of analysis with some of the biggest stars in the world and political leaders, and they're not always aligned. They sometimes have a lot of confidence in their professional profile, in the way that their authority in the world. In their personal life, they're a little bit less sure of themselves in their goals. So your takeaway is if you have low T-bars, make them a little bit higher. If you have middle to high T-bars, you may want to make them a little bit stronger. And again, if you're skeptical of this in any way, which I would imagine you are, that's normal. I would say to yourself, if I get nothing other than the very worst, it's a placebo, where I remind myself to set high goals moving forward in my life. And at the best, it rewires my neural pathways by setting higher goals, by raising my T-bar, I am raising my own expectations to expect more of myself than anybody else can imagine, then what are the possibilities?